Welcome to the Myth, Legend, and Lore podcast. Today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming Professor Caroline Larrington to the podcast. Caroline is Professor of Medieval European Literature at the University of Oxford and an author whose books include The Norse Myths, A Guide to Gods and Heroes, The Land of the Green Man, Winter is Coming, and now All Men Must Die, Power and Passion in Game of Thrones. Caroline, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Siobhan. It's great to be here. I'm really delighted to have you here today. Can you tell us a little about your interest in Game of Thrones? and What led you to write two fantastic books revealing firstly the historical inspiration and now an exploration of a show that's been really quite remarkable? Really, it all first started back in about 2011 when the, sh the show first began to be broadcast. And there's a lot of talk about it. And I thought... Mm, this sounds like something I should know about because it sounds quite interesting. But then I forgot about it. And then I finally tuned in around about episode five and Jamie and Cersei were having a very intense conversation. And I thought, who are these people? And oh, well, I've just missed too much. So I shelved it for that year. But then I realised that quite a lot of Series two is going to be filmed in Iceland. And I thought, hmm, filmed in Iceland. Eh? I should take a professional interest in this. And then I found myself on the plane going to the States in 2012. And my companion just got on the plane and fell asleep immediately. And I was looking to see what there was in the in-flight entertainment. And I came across Game of Thrones. So I thought, oh, OK, that thing. Well, I'll just have a look and see what it's like. And after about 20 minutes, I thought, yes yes I am in here and that was really produced by the northernness and the kind of snowiness of the beginning with that sort of gripping scene with the men riding out from Castle Black and you don't know who they are or what the castle is and they're having this conversation about wildlings and then they go into the haunted forest and they find these weird patterns of corpses on the snow and then one of them revives and then you have that wonderful title sequence and then suddenly everything's normal and you're in Winterfell and you introduce to the family. And then there was Sean Bean too. Oh, we're in safe hands if Sean Bean is here. And so I was looking with a kind of critical eye at the, the way in which the world was being imagined. And I thought, yeah, okay, that seems to make sense. That seems historically plausible in particular context. And I suppose one of the key things which really drew me in watching three episodes back to back on that journey was the fact perhaps that there wasn't very much the supernatural, that you didn't have a cast of wizards wandering around the place upending normality. But actually it was a snapshot of in that episode, three different medieval societies, this kind of um, quite early medieval society, it seemed in the north, and then a late medieval society in King's Landing. 
and then something very barbaric and exotic over the sea in Pentos, where Daenerys was getting married to Khal Drogo. And I thought, yeah, okay, I think what's going on here looks really interesting in terms of a kind of plausibility, if you can talk about plausibility in the context of a fantasy epic. I wonder if you could explain the differences between what we think of as the medieval world and medieval fantasy and how Game of Thrones may be best described. Well, I suppose um, the medieval world is a very complicated place in a way, because we're talking about from 500 to 1500, we're talking about a thousand years. And we're talking about a whole different group of societies and cultures spread all the way across, let's say, Europe and Asia, for the sake of argument, though obviously there's a medieval past in in Africa and in the Americas as well. It's just not medieval in the sense of being in the Middle Ages of something, because it doesn't drop into a particular kind of um, delineated gap between the classical period and the modern period as it does in in Europe and parts of Asia. And so um, medieval history then includes a huge number of different societies with different religions, differently organized, with different views about the ways in which um, men and women relate to each other, different views about the family very often, um, different kinds of social practices in some ways also quite similar and maybe the the key similarity is that across most of Europe people are living on the products of agriculture that farming is absolutely key whereas in quite a few parts of Asia you have nomadic tribesmen who are herding animals and hunting rather than actually being settled and and living on farms and that, I think, is a, is a big social difference that you can see coming out in the show when you see the way that the Dodraki live. And, of course, the, the people above um, to the north of the wall as well have a rather different kind of social setup because they have to live in such unpromising environments. And then in fantasy epic, very often, you don't get this kind of range. If we think about something like Tolkien, we have a basically... Western European Middle Ages, or not even Middle Ages, perhaps in, in Hobbit Town. In the Shire, things are more like a pre-industrial, quite cosy, um, rural setup. And then you, as you leave the Shire and you go into a more medievalized set of cultures, a very Anglo-Saxon one among the riders of Rohirrim. And then you have the, um, the Kingdom of Gondor, which is very much kind of late medieval society that's waiting for its king to return. And although they, those societies are well sketched in Tolkien, and he makes a lot of suppositions about what we know about um, kings and about riders and about halls and so on, what we have in, in A Game of Thrones, I think, is much more range and variety. And of course, because you're being shown it rather than being told about it, the show can just display things. And although sometimes you have to have somebody explaining stuff, 
most of the time the showrunners, and I, I think they're very good at this, trust you to kind of pick it up as you go along. So every now and again, you have to have um, a conversation where say Robert Baratheon reminds Ned Stark of how long they've been friends and Robert's rebellion and how they all fought together to overcome the Mad King. And in episode one, you think, well, yeah, we've got to have that because we, we don't know who these people are, what their relationship is. And then sort of notoriously, you have Peter Baelish as well, giving the account of his life to two prostitutes in his brothel in, in episode seven of season one. But most of the rest of the time, the, the showrunners kind of trust you to keep with what's going on. And that's quite important, I think. And so they don't stop necessarily to explain what a castle is, because everyone knows what a castle is. And you can see there are differences between Winterfell and King's Landing, the Red Keep in King's Landing, but nobody needs to pop up and explain what those differences are. You can, you can work out for yourself that the way in which Ned Stark calls up military power is very different from the way that the Lannisters call up military power, for example. And that reflects an earlier medieval model as against a later medieval model. But perhaps the viewers don't care about that so much, but rather they can see that it depends on different kinds of power. And that becomes very clear if we think of all the scenes we have with all the bannermen of the Starks all assembling in the Great Hall in Winterfell and kind of arguing about stuff. And as it might be, Rob or Jon Snow is going, yeah, guys, we have a problem. You know, we, we need to assemble some men and we need to march against the Boltons or against Stannis or whoever it is. You know, we've got to, to sort this out. Whereas down in the south, because the Lannisters have an army that's on standby and which is getting paid with Lannister gold, they can just go, right, we need to put 20,000 men in the field, go over there and Jamie or whoever can lead them off and get things done. So it's those kinds of differences which the show exploits in some ways from thinking about medieval history, but it doesn't turn it into a history lesson. It definitely remains entertaining. I remember a scene from the first episode, I think, and it's when the Lannisters arrive at Winterfell and the Starks are all uh, lined up outside to meet them. It was quite a grand entrance and you really can get a sense of the power of the Lannisters, but there was also an indication of the status between the two groups as well. Yes, it's a very nice demonstration of, of the kind of showiness of the South and the kind of plainness of the North. They're all in the best clothes, but they're, they're all quite dark and sombre and they might have you know, wolf fur adornments, but they're not wearing the kind of red, gold and, and striking clothing that uh, the Lannisters are so fond of. Robert, maybe not so much, but uh, Jamie and Cersei certainly go in for, for very brilliant colour schemes. And you can see the formality and then how that kind of modulates into the great friendship between Robert and Ned when Robert just says oh come here and gives him a, a great hug and Cersei and Jamie are still very much on their kind of high horses you know almost literally. The first chapter is institutions and the family and reading about what that actually means from house to house was fascinating. Do you think the emphasis of these bonds and relationships helps us to better understand the motives and actions of some of the characters? 
I thought it was very interesting to think in terms of family structures, partly because one of the other books I've written is about brothers and sisters in medieval European literature. Um, that's one of the more academic books, but I've been very interested in the relationship between siblings for quite a long time. And so I was struck by a rather useful book that I read about the show in German by a, an academic called Kerstin Stutterheim. And Heim, I should say, Stutterheim. And she made the point that American shows, by and large, if we're not thinking about something like Star Trek, but um, really popular American shows are, are centered on the family. And we might think of, I don't know, um, if we go back to things like Dynasty, say, or um, um, The Waltons is a kind of case in point, just kind of ancient shows from my childhood, or The Cosby Show. Um, and Sutterheim Sutter is arguing in some ways that this is because Americans don't have the same kind of institutions and attachments to institutions that we have in Europe, which is maybe debatable, but everybody has a family. And even if families have slightly different structures across the, the world, depending on whether your, your older generation lives with you or lives somewhere else, whether you have brothers and sisters under the same roof, even after they're married and so on. Nevertheless, those family patterns are absolutely recognisable. And I think that's what's really contributed to the show being watched in 207 countries across the world. Everybody can see the way that different kinds of families operate. And so what, what I argue in that first chapter is that in some ways, what we see is a failure in parenting, that the mothers try quite hard to take care of their children, to give them advice, to try and make them grow into better people. But they're thwarted partly by the lack of power that women have, partly by all sorts of other circumstances. And we can look across all the major families and see how badly the mothers come out of it. That The only mother left standing by the end pretty well is Circe. And her children are all dead. She's pregnant maybe with another one, at least everybody seems to think that but she can't take the final step that's necessary to protect the life of that unborn child. And then the fathers in some ways are even worse because we have fathers like Balon Greyjoy, we have Tywin who bully their children, who make them absolutely miserable. And in the case of Tywin, of course, it's not just Tyrion whom he persecutes, but he, he has a grudging respect for Jaime, but he doesn't really think all that much of him. I think because he resents the fact that he is sworn to celibacy as the leader of the gold cloaks and therefore he's not going to produce an heir for, for Casterly Rock. And he manipulates Cersei to make her do what she wants and she just doesn't seem to be able to stand up to him. And then we have Bruce Bolton as well. So we have a whole series of fathers and there's a, a wonderful moment where when Tyrion first meets Daenerys, he says, well, here we sit, two terrible children of two terrible fathers. And you think, well, yeah, Tywin is pretty grim. He's not the mad king. He's not that bad. But nevertheless, the ways in which these parents, these fathers treat their children kind of ripples through the generations. And you can see what damage it does. At the same time, as we have some very positive models of parenting, 
when it comes to looking after other people's children. So Ned Stark, who is the best father in the show by miles and is kind to everybody, including Theon, his um, hostage and ward, but also to his bastard nephew, as it's going to turn out, Jon Snow, who really, really looks up to Ned. Ned doesn't last long enough to change those people's lives forever but he remains as a kind of model of memory and um, when Theon and John are reconciled at Dragonstone Theon acknowledges how much Ned did for him and how he always kind of wanted to be a Stark and we also see other fathers and I think here of Sam taking on Gilly's baby and then fathering a child of his own that we haven't seen yet and Davos's relationship with little Shireen as well, that men do seem to be able to be kind and tender to people who aren't their kids, who they don't have that sort of investment in. And so the, the show's got these really interesting questions about parenting. And where most medieval romances, um, and which is something we can compare the show to, and epic in some ways is always about leaving your home, going off, going to the new place, seeking adventure, growing up, becoming the adult that you're meant to become. Uh, Game of Thrones is no different in that respect, but the ending, because it's so, so much what's left standing after the huge catastrophes, is somehow not one which gives as much hope or promise of a, a better future as you expect, I think, in fantasy epics. Nothing really has been restored Nothing has been built, really, that seems very lasting. And you end in the whole council chamber with sort of business as usual. In chapter two, you discuss the buildings, Roman. Could you explain a little bit more about this and why it plays such a fundamental role in the show? Yeah, the buildings, Roman, is a kind of um, German term for a particular kind of, of novel, which really develops I suppose in the 18th century it has quite a close relationship to the medieval romance because it tells the story of the young person usually the young man of course who becomes kind of aware of himself and his surroundings and his education and what kind of person he's expected to be as he grows into adolescence and then he decides to become something maybe which is a bit different from what was expected of him. And the Bildungsroman is very interested in seeing how things that happen to young people shapes them and turns them into the kind of person that they are and charts that. And it can end again with marriage or it can end with uh, a kind of settling down somewhere, let's say, because it's not an autobiography. It doesn't necessarily go to the point where the, the hero is on his deathbed looking back at his long and happy life that he, he forged for himself. But it's, it's a kind of writing that's really interested in the formation of young people. And so to me, it's within the fantasy epic it's the genre that really frames the show because the epic gives us the big background, but the individual stories for the most part are the stories of the younger generation trying to get away from the models of their parents. So they're the stories of Theon, of John, of Daenerys, 
of Yara, of Arya, of Sansa, of Tyrion, of Bran in some ways. And they all have different paths to take. They're all, they all have different journeys, uh, which is the kind of thing that Bran is always saying in his kind of, by the end, in his kind of um, three-eyed raven, um, placidly, um, annoyingly calm way, I think. So, ah, but this was always meant to be, is what you know, Bran is always saying. And so each of them has to start where they begin and get to a particular place and they have to change as they go along and find out the limits of what they expected their lives were going to be like and the limits of what it's possible do, to do to change those lives. And Arya, I think, is, is one of the best cases in a way that her mother sees her as a slightly difficult version of Sansa, but she's supposed to become feminized and domestic and as Ned says to her in season seven marry the nice lord of some hold fast somewhere and have lots of children and just um, have a, a normal aristocratic female life and Nara is no no this is not what I want can you teach me to fight and Ned indulges her by by arranging for her dancing master Syria Farrell to come and teach her some basic moves and that sets Arya on a path that takes her by a very sort of long and wandering way to that encounter with Jack and Hagar. Um, and we still don't know. This is one of the, the unanswered questions. Was that just chance that he happened to be at Harrenhal and she bumped into him there? Had he come for her in some way that we don't understand? And then after all that wandering around with the hound and learning, I think, some quite important lessons about fighting and killing and being tough, but also some questions about morality as well. She finds herself, or she takes herself off to Bravos and enrolls in the House of Black and White and learns the techniques of the faceless men and struggles to become no one, to become someone who's just a servant of the order and to leave behind that identity of being a Stark. And when she buries Needle, you think, aha, <laughs> she'll be back for that. And sure enough, um, in some ways, although I enjoyed some parts of the Bravos storyline, and there were some, some particularly fine scenes, I think when Merrin Trant finally got his just desserts, I was very pleased with that. And I was very interested in the way that Arya decided that she couldn't follow through on the contract on Lady Crane just because it was some other actress in the company who was jealous of, of Lady Crane who had taken out the contract. And the waif and Jack and Hagar would say, well, no, it's not for you to question this. You've been contracted to do it. You have to do it. But Arya won't. And in a sense, that's where her problems with the waif begin. And no, actually, the waif has always been horrible to her, but she becomes particularly horrible after that point. Um, for me, there was a bit too much um, being knocked around by the waif and being chased around the, the streets of Bravos. But eventually, she does see the, the waif off, and then she has had enough. And gets needle and goes, yeah, I'm Arya Stark and I'm going back. 
And then you see her making her way back to Winterfell, which has this kind of magnetic lure for all the Starks. They just want to get there, whatever it takes. And well, I always think there's a slightly underplayed glimpse of Nymeria, or was it, in the woods on the way back. And then Arya finds herself, yeah, in some ways to, to fan annoyance, but also thwarting everybody's expectations, I think. She finds that she's the one who can kill the Night King with that kind of amazing flying leap that she does. And so, so her story really does illustrate um, from that moment to coming down to King's Landing, of course, then she has to finally smother that desire for revenge that she's been waiting for all these years, ever since she saw her father executed, and she's been reciting that list. And then the hound of all people, in a way, the one whose life is absolutely driven by the desire to take vengeance on his brother. The hound persuades her just to turn around and leave Cersei to her fate, which is such great advice, it's got to be said. Um, and I don't know quite what else you could have done with Arya. I, there wasn't really a career for her in the North, but you couldn't see her readapting to King's Landing either. But certainly the, some fans sort of wondered about the implications of her getting on that ship and sailing off westward. And I thought, well, maybe The Further Adventures of Arya is kind of obvious sequel, but uh, that doesn't seem to be the chat at any rate. I agree. I think it's such a shame that we don't have a continuation of Arya's story and she was such a brilliant character. In some ways I felt that she never really settled back into life at Winterfell after her return and um, I often felt quite on edge because at times I felt like her future was quite uncertain. Yeah, she'd seen too much and I think Gendry's very sweet offer to marry her and make her Lady of Dragonstone, that maybe the, yeah, that could have worked. Except she would get she'd get really bored in Dragonstone, which is not the most exciting place to be, I think. And uh, and then she'd be off, and Paul Gendry would be sitting there completely heartbroken. So you could you could certainly see how Arya became uncontainable within that the, the world that was beginning to emerge that she needed to go off to other places. But yes, I think she did have a further story that we would like to have heard more about. Whereas somehow I feel with John, um, he's just gonna trudge around with torment in the snow and, uh, and look miserable for the rest of his life. But uh, my one hope has been that Egret um, someone somehow has a sister up there in the North with the, the same red hair, possibly played by the same actress, who knows, since they are married and, uh, and that he'll find true love beyond the wall. Um, once again but I don't think his story had anything left to give whereas Arya's does in a way. There definitely was a sense of closure with John, and I would like to think that there was some kind of future happiness for him but I, I don't know. Another character that I found interesting was Theon. He certainly wasn't my favourite character to begin with, not by, by any means. And uh, the, the psychological and physical abuse that he endured was absolutely horrendous and very hard to watch. However, I felt that by the end, he had managed to repair a little of the damage that he had caused in the past. 
Yeah, uh, it was a really good redemption arc, wasn't it, I think, for Theon? Because when you look back at the the early episodes of season one, you forget how obnoxious he was, actually. And uh, I think the way he's he's just thinking about sex all the time, the way he tries to pull Yara when he gets back to the Iron Islands and that kind of swagger. And you just think, no, no, what are you thinking of? Come on. Um, and I was a bit worried uh, that uh, he was actually going to succeed in seducing her. And then you have a big kind of brother-sister incest by accident um, subplot problem. Um, and to my mind, there were maybe too many scenes of Theon getting tortured, whether it was mentally or physically. But at the same time, in comparison with the books, where the the psychological breaking of, of Theon and transforming him into Reek seems to go on forever, maybe there was slightly too much, but it was necessary to kind of totally destroy him. And even when he's behaving at his worst, though, I think it's quite important that he, he you can see how sort of unsure he is when he takes Winterfell and he's pretty pleased with himself. He's going, ha, look, Dad, see? Yeah, I can do this stuff. And so Roderick, um, the, the master of arms of Winterfell, challenges him and, and says, you know, and, and Master... Lewin as well says, this isn't you, Theon, I know you, you're not like this. And you can see poor Theon kind of struggling with that. And it's that that makes him not pursue Osher and Rickon and Bran when they escape. Um, and to produce the Miller's boys, the Miller's children instead, which, you know, it's terrible that they get killed in a sense. Um, these poor children die in order to save the the noble boys, but it's uh, quite a a well worn trope in in this kind of storytelling. And you can see Theon getting more and more degraded, but then once he's back together with Sansa, she her strength gives him more strength. And there's when they make that wonderful leap from the top of the wall at the end of what is it season five I think and you think yes yes at last Theon's coming back to himself and thereafter it's quite a struggle still for Theon I think who's so was so bound up in his own masculinity to come to terms with the fact that he he's no longer a man in that sense and it's interesting too, I think, that the kind of healing really gets properly underway when he's back at Dragonstone and John acknowledges him as a Stark once again. And then almost before you know it, he's taking control, he's, he's got his manliness back and he's fighting with Harag down on the beach and saying, okay, no, we're not going to off to do some... Um, reaving, roving, raiding and raping in the kind of typical ironborn way. No, we're going to go and rescue my sister and I don't care who doesn't like it because I'm in charge. And that kind, that's the, the old Theon, but actually a much better version of the old Theon coming back again. And although you kind of feel when he dies in, um, in the Godswood at Winterfell, 
it's very much the case of the situation calls for pointless sacrifice. Oh, look, here's Theon making a pointless sacrifice. Um, nevertheless, you know, like, like all of the events towards the end of that battle, it's just buying enough time to get Arya into position. And Bran does acknowledge that. And one of the things that I think I found most moving about Theon's story was the very end, the, the great scenes of the funeral pyres outside Winterfell. And with Arya, not Arya, Sansa, sorry, Sansa, pinning the Stark sigil onto him and reincorporating him into the Starks. And I think that was one of the points at which I may have sniffed. I don't know that a tear ran down my nose, but I certainly kind of went, oh. Oh, goodness. Oh, absolutely. We know that um, Theon's torture is caused by Ramsay Bolton. And um, in the show, there really is a very long list of irredeemable characters. The question of whether monsters are born or made is a really interesting one. In the cases of Joffrey and Ramsay, do you think their horrendous natures are a result of their formative years? I think for Ramsay, um, well, I think we, for both of those boys, it was partly nature and partly nurture. And I think for Ramsay, it was less maybe of a hereditary component. Now, his father was obviously an appalling person in, in every way, um, but he wasn't as appalling as Ramsay. And, but the way in which you could see how Ramsay's family dynamics had completely destroyed his chances, that his mother had turned up at the house, having been raped by Roos in the past, with this baby. And Roos's uh, first instinct was to chuck them both in the river but um i think he keeps the mother around and and keeps ramsey around as a kind of useful tool but sort of molds him into a boy who is not at all loved but indulges him at the same time because having no other son um and in the books at least there's a strong implication that Bruce does have legitimate children, but Ramsay murders them in different ways. I think that's rather repressed in the show. I can't remember that that Roos says um, anything about other children. And it would be unusual, I think, if you suspected that your sadistic bastard was killing your children at a regular rate to keep him around in quite that way. And so you can see how the, the hideous family dynamics have shaped... Ramsey in part into what he is and the fact that the way he behaves is quite useful to Roos and so he, he becomes a kind of tool for him but at the same time Joffrey has got this incestuous heredity that both Tyrion and Varys at different times say you know what do they say whenever a Targaryen is born the the gods toss a coin to see if they're going to be completely mad or not and Joffrey, Joffrey represents, in a way, a kind of different case from, from Ramsay in that he's spoilt and indulged by his mother. His father takes, so his supposed father, Robert, takes no notice of the children at all, as far as I can tell. He's busy off hunting and whoring and not running the kingdom. And so Joffrey is left very much to Cersei's difficult brand of mothering, but you can see also from Cersei's conversations with both with um, 
Kat and I think later on with Marjorie um, and with Sansa, that's right, that she really loves Joffrey enormously because he's her firstborn, the firstborn child to survive. And that where she's left without any other kind of emotional support, because Robert is still obsessed with Lyanna, her father bullies her, her brother is in this incestuous relationship with her, but also busy covering it up and being the leader of the gold cloaks and so on. But it's not surprising that Cersei just invests so much in, in uh, Joffrey and that Joffrey should become strange and difficult and willful because of it and you can see how Cersei has kind of trained him into thinking he can do whatever he likes and particularly when she says things like when you're king the truth will be what what you decide it is and then when he's king and he just suddenly whimsically says oh yeah execute Ned Stark after all this careful negotiation about Ned is going to take the black and go to the wall and he just goes kill him and even Cersei's kind of going what because she's got enough sense to know this is politically disastrous um when Joffrey turns out to have kind of weird sexual sadistic proclivities with the crossbow and Paul Ross getting shot um again for me that seemed to be taking things perhaps a little bit too far in the cartoonish sort of direction I don't think you need I don't think Ross deserved to die like that and I think there's something very um very disturbingly voyeuristic about the way that whole scene was staged and um, very much from the male viewer's point of view and uh, yeah I did maybe feel a little bit sorry when Joffrey was on the ground at the purple wedding frothing at the mouth but I was also at that point so identifying with Marjorie that I was thinking phew at least you don't have to marry him or stay married to him and so I think the, in a way, what the show did there was to juxtapose the overindulged boy with the completely unloved boy and see how both of them could turn into monsters. But there was something already in their genes, if you like. So there wasn't the fear that every overindulged child will turn into a monster. And of course, Miss Seller, as, as uh, Cersei says, was a lovely girl and she says when Miss Ella comes back dead from dawn she said she was so much not like me she was so good and so kind and uh, and what we see of Miss Ella which I think is nothing like enough does lead us to think that that that's the case and the same is true with Tommen and his cat and he was a, a sweet child as well and perhaps because he was always playing second fiddle to Joffrey that's why he became so susceptible to the High Sparrow using him maybe, or at least converting him in ways that uh, you can never quite tell. And I think that's one of the great things about Jonathan Price's performance as the High Sparrow. I was wondering if any of the female characters embody traits or are they perhaps modeled on female archetypes found in mythology or literature? Brienne certainly, I think, is is one of those figures that she's the um, kind of a, a, a different version of Arya, of the the girl who wants to be a fighter, the girl who wants to reject gender categories, 
And for Aria, I think because she's younger, because she's not the heir to Toth, she and because of the um, the kind of picaresque adventure she has once she's she has no parental control over her, she's ricocheting around with Jakan Hagar and uh, and the Hound and so on. Arya manages to forge herself, but Brienne is stuck with being somebody who is tall and ungainly and not particularly beautiful, and she really, really wants to be a knight, but she hasn't lost in some ways that hope of of finding somebody to love and she becomes devoted to Renly and there's no that, that's obviously not going anywhere and then that's um that wonderful relationship that she has with Jamie I was in a way slightly sorry that Jamie and she got it together in season eight because um you can never see them staying together. And so it was a quick kind of, well, thanks for that. And he's off down the road to Cersei again. I thought that was disappointing behavior from Jamie there. So I think, I think Brienne does conform to the archetype of the, the woman warrior that you find across many, many traditions, not simply in Western Europe. And her name itself chimes with um, Britta Mart who is a figure in Spencer's Fairy Queen, who is a virgin knight who goes around um, conquering men right, left and centre because she's a great fighter and because her virginity gives her a particular kind of power as well. And she also figures Queen Elizabeth I as the virgin queen. So she comes you know, charged with all kinds of, um, of associations there. So I think there's that archetypal figure interestingly explored across the, the two of them. Uh, and you can see Sansa as the damsel in distress, the, the girl who has to grow up quite quickly. And I, looking back on the show, I'm very interested now in the ways in which Sansa and Cersei get along with each other, that Cersei is kind of pouring all these cynical life lessons into Sansa's ear and Sansa is just looking kind of wide-eyed and also thinking, I've got to say the right thing or else I'll probably be executed. And so Sansa learns that being a damsel in distress doesn't mean anyone's necessarily going to rescue you, that you've got to rescue yourself. And if that means playing Baelish along, then that's what you have to do. And when the, the show was still being broadcast, I kept finding myself at the end of every season saying, well, Sansa's ended up in a stronger place at the end of season four. And I think the next season's the one where she's, we're really going to see Sansa showing her power, beginning to grow into a real actor in the Game of Thrones. And then, of course, next thing you know, she's married to Ramsay. <laughs> you think, okay, well, it's not this season then, but next season she's going to, to grow into her power. And uh, so I think she she unpicks that that stereotype very nicely, that idea of her own growing agency. And the place that Sansa ends up is particularly satisfying, I think. Do you think there is a moment or an event that marks the beginning of Daenerys' slip into madness? Or was it perhaps a gradual decline that her psyche was being chipped away at over the course of the seasons? That's a really interesting question. Daniel Weiss says that it's the moment she sees King's Landing from the air 
and that flips her over. But uh, quite a few um, fans and commentators have said no, um, because that's so much the kind of mad queen trope that um, something just suddenly makes her flip. And, and so I don't quite buy that. And I think that's partly because we've had a fair amount of preparation in the form of the increasing revelations about what her father was like. And so when you've got that wonderful scene with Jamie and Brienne in the bath in Harrenhal, isn't it? Um, and Jamie describes what it was like when Brandon Stark was being burnt and how Jamie became the Kingslayer. And you think, that's awful, but our Daenerys is, is not at all like that, is she? She couldn't be mad in the way that her father is. We've seen her come through so much with such cleverness and, and resolution and with a very strong moral sense. That's not a her. But then we have, you know, the crucifixion and the burning of the Carls. And then we have, I think, Varys talking to Tyrion in Dragonstone in season seven and saying, I kept saying, oh, maybe it's season eight already. And he kept, he says, well, I've served under these kings and I was just a servant. And when they did things, I said, it's not me doing it, it's them. But when the Mad King was burning people, I stood back. And so those reminders of, the, of her father become more and more critical, I think, at this point. And although when she's at Winterfell, you can see that she's under a lot of strain because you know, Sansa is being snotty to her and everybody else is going, oh, John, how great to see you. Um, no, you, not so much. And, and the way that she feels completely excluded from this northern um, identity and the family warmth and so on, you can see that beginning to niggle at her. And then John says, well, you know, now I know who I am. Obviously, I'm not going to take the throne from you. And a degree of paranoia is sown in Daenerys at that point, I think for, for good reasons, because you can see exactly how as as Baristan had and Jorah had warned her, you know, back in in Marine all that time ago, the great houses are the ones you've got to carry along with you if you want to be king, or if you want to sit on the Iron Throne. And the great houses are going to look at John and they're going to look at her and go, We'll take the man, thank you. Now he's legitimate. And you could solve this conventionally by marrying the pair of them, but John is not going to buy into an incestuous relationship. And although this has been fine in the history of the Targaryens up until now, I think it's the crumbling of her romantic hopes, along with her sense of exclusion from the family, that tips Daenerys over. But it's also a kind of messiah complex that she does know what's best for everybody. And that's been building ever since she arrived at Slaver's Bay, where she went not really on some great liberating mission exactly as to try and get some manpower in order to invade Westeros. 
So it wasn't like she'd, she'd heard from afar how awful conditions were in Slaver's Bay and she thought, oh, I must go and sort it out. It's really quite pragmatic. She needs the Unsullied as her military base. And she's quite um, hard-nosed when she's talking to Jorah and, and Baristan about it. And she says, basically, what are the optics if I turn up in Westeros with a slave army? knowing how strongly people in Westeros feel about slavery. And Jorah and Barrison are going, well, that's not really going to work terribly well. And she goes, no, I know. And then she has the brilliant idea of buying all of the Unsullied and then liberating them, which is great strategy. But then she finds herself kind of stuck in Marine and trying to make things better. And you can see that having kind of abolished slavery and having kind of got things to work in marine though really clearing off just at the point where you've got a kind of status quo but you left dario naharis in charge and you're thinking really and full abolition of slavery is not going to come in for another seven years you're thinking yeah okay well that was <laughs> that was you know, about six out of ten some points for trying i think but she's um because she has the dragons, and of course that's so so critical to the balance of power, she thinks, yeah, well, I can make people be good. I can force them into doing what's best for them and for me. Um, and what's good for me must be good for everybody because I'm basically a good person. And I think if you'd had a moment after she's burnt down King's Landing where she kind of went, my God, what was that all about? What was I even thinking? I've just talked my new capital. This must never happen again. I'm really sorry. Things, things could have panned out differently. But that final speech, that, that final conversation she has with John, when she's still trying to say, look, I'm right. I can save the world because I know what's good for everybody. And when she fatally says, when, when John says, well, what about the people who don't want to be saved? And she says, well, they don't get to choose. And she echoes what Tyrion had been saying in the cell just before when, when John is still humming and hawing. And Tyrion goes, well, what about your sisters? Do you think they'll choose to follow Daenerys? And John said, well, they don't get to choose. And you can see how that dialogue carries across. And that's the point at which he knows that he's got to act. And so I'm not sure that, that Daenerys's madness comes out of nowhere, but I'm not sure that it's as developed as, as it kind of needed, perhaps. Partly because I think the showrunners were hedging their bets up until probably well into season seven as to what was gonna happen. And so you don't want to make Daenerys completely barking mad at that stage otherwise we'll all be quite pleased by the time she's bumped off finally you know, I think as as we kind of were with Cersei and so although we're told that Martin had told the showrunners where all the characters were meant to end up and so Daenerys probably always was going to end up dead but how she ends up dead might have been a, a series of choices that the showrunners were were open to make. At the end of the last season, we find women in key positions of power despite the suffering they've endured. For example, Sansa, Yara, Brienne and to a degree Arya. Do you think this is significant when we consider elements of violence involving women throughout the series? 
I think it it was a very important final look to the show that the surviving the bad women the the really huge difficult women have gone down in the form of Cersei and Daenerys and you have more reasonable women left and in some ways you can look at it and say yeah of course the women are left to do the cleaning up and the tidying along with Tyrion who I think we we shouldn't underestimate here Tyrion's um, capacity to get things done even when he's in chains with grey worms standing over him going oh no I, I really think we should execute him and Tyrion just persuades everybody to to go along with his plan with the force of his rhetoric alone with with some um some help from uh, from some of the others too I mean, it's clearly in Sansa's interest to to think that Bran is is going to make a good king but I think it is important that we see Arya in command of her own ship going off to explore the new adventures that are coming her way and that we see Sansa as Queen of the North because she she's never been or so we thought that political but that's something that she's come to learning from Baelish I think and learning from from Tyrion as well in some ways and learning from John's kind of general uselessness at politics. And you can really see when John turns up with Daenerys back in and says, well, you know, I've kind of bent the knee to her and we're going to do this thing with her now. And you can see how the people in the North and Sanston in particular are going, well, wait a minute, you were king in the North and we sent you to go negotiate with her. And now you're going, oh, no, she's the queen. You know, it's all fine. So you can, you can see how Sansa has really become her father's daughter at that point, that what she cares about, almost to the exclusion of everything else, is the people of the North. And Brienne, I think, is finally in a, a good place as well. And I thought it was very touching the way she, she wrote Jamie's final epitaph in, in the book of the, uh, of the, the King's Guard. So I think it was important that you have the women doing the really important stuff in a way and, and Tyrion, who's running the show. But the rest of the small council, only Davos I'm very fond of, but he's not really a mover and a shaker. He'll be fine as master of ships. He knows about ships. You know, that's his job. Bronn, mm, uh, maybe promoted uh, beyond his merits in some ways. And Bran is shaping up, it seemed to me, to be a, a kind of do-nothing king. Now, I'd like to think he's a philosopher king and he's going to come up with great plans and thoughts and then Tyrion will put them into action. But when he's wheeled in by Pod and he kind of goes, what are you all doing? Ah, oh, very good, carry on. I'll just go away and see if I can figure out where Drogon has gone. Bye. Um, you think, ah, is this, is this really the kingship that... The Six Kingdoms needs. I mean, they don't want anything that's more exciting, perhaps. But at the same time, you kind of feel Sansa is sitting in Winterfell going, okay, this is what we need to do. These are the plans. These are the reforms. We need to have um, these trade links for this kingdom. I'm quite pally with Yara now, I guess, so I can um, you know, forge links for the Iron Islands. There's, there's all kinds of stuff she can do. And 
I guess because King's Landing is in ruins, that they're all kind of days still in the small council. But you feel that the, the women are the ones who can see a way forward. Caroline, I honestly can't thank you enough for today. It's been so lovely and I've really enjoyed our conversation. There's just still so much more to talk about. Um, we might well need another episode. The world of Game of Thrones is incredibly vast and there are many more interesting characters and beings to explore. Well, it's been lovely talking to you and we could indeed talk so much more about things like we've hardly talked about Dawn. We've barely talked about the White Walkers the wildlings, all these other interesting figures. But, well, when the uh, the prequels start coming through, maybe we'll have another book to talk about. Goodness, that, that would be fantastic. I think the, the White Walkers, the wildlings and the children of the forest would make for a really interesting conversation. But until then, where might listeners pick up a copy of All Men Must Die? Well, anywhere they like, um, from all good bookshops, all online bookshops. It's available, I think, as an ebook as well, or it will be very shortly. So you can get it directly from Bloomsbury or anywhere else will be able to get a, a copy of it for you. And of course, if you enjoy reading All Men Must Die and you want to know more about the, the actual historical building blocks of the world of the show, there's Winter is Coming as well. Absolutely. I highly recommend Winter is Coming. And for one of our listeners, we have a copy of All Men Must Die. To be in with the chance of winning, all you have to do is enter your name via email to mlegendslore at gmail.com and we will draw the lucky winner's name from hat. Once again, Caroline, thank you so much for today. It's been wonderful. Okay, thank you. As always feel free to get in touch on email mlegendlore at gmail.com over on Twitter at loremyth or Facebook and even the YouTube channel. Keep safe. Take care for now. I'm Siobhan Clark and you've been listening to the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast. <laughs>